With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Camp of the Dog by Algernon Blackwood Read by Charles Blakemore The Camp of the Dog, Part 1 Islands of all shapes and sizes troop northward from Stockholm by the hundred, and the little steamer that threads their intricate mazes in summer leaves the traveler in a somewhat bewildered state as regards the points of the compass when it reaches the end of its journey at Waxholm. But it is only after Waxholm that the true islands begin, so to speak, to run wild, and start up the coast on their tangled course of a hundred miles of deserted loveliness. And it was in the very heart of this delightful confusion that we pitched our tents for a summer holiday. A veritable wilderness of islands lay about us, from the mere round button of rock that bore a single fir to the mountainous stretch of a square mile densely wooded and bounded by precipitous cliffs, so close together often that a strip of water ran between no wider than a country lane, or again so far that an expanse stretched like the open sea for miles. Although the larger islands boasted farms and fishing stations, the majority were uninhabited, Carpeted with moss and heather, their coastlines showed a series of ravines and clefts and little sandy bays, with a growth of splendid pine woods that came down to the water's edge and led the eye through unknown depths of shadow and mystery into the very heart of primitive forest. The particular islands to which we had camping rights by virtue of paying a nominal sum to a Stockholm merchant lay together in a, in a picturesque group far beyond the reach of the steamer one being a mere reef with a fringe of fairy-like birches, and two others, cliff-bound monsters rising with hooded heads out of the sea. The fourth, which we selected because it enclosed a little lagoon suitable for anchorage, bathing, night lines, and what not, shall have what description is necessary as the story proceeds. But so far as paying rent was concerned, we might equally have pitched our tents on any one of a hundred others that clustered about us as thickly a swarm of bees. It was in the blaze of an evening in July, the air clear as crystal, the sea a cobalt blue, when we left the steamer on the borders of civilization and sailed away with maps, compasses, and provisions for the little group of dots in the Skaggard that were to be our home for the next two months. 
The dinghy and my Canadian canoe trailed behind us, with tents and dunnage carefully piled aboard, and when the point of cliff intervened to hide the steamer and the Waxham Hotel, we realized for the first time that the horror of trains and houses was far behind us, the fever of men and cities, the weariness of streets and confined spaces. The wilderness opened up on all sides into endless blue reaches, and the map and compasses were so frequently called into requisition that we went astray more often than not, and progress was enchantingly slow. It took us, for instance, two whole days to find our crescent-shaped home, and the camps we made on the way were so fascinating that we left them with difficulty and regret, for each island seemed more desirable than the one before it and over all lay the spell of haunting peace, remoteness from the turmoil of the world, and the freedom of open and desolate spaces. And so many of these spots of world beauty have I sought out and dwelt in, that in my mind remains only a composite memory of their faces, a true map of heaven, as it were, from which this particular one stands forth with unusual sharpness because of the strange things that happened there, and also, I think, because anything in which John Silence played a part has a habit of fixing itself in the mind with a living and lasting quality of vividness. For the moment, however, Dr. Silence was not of the party. Some private case in the interior of Hungary claimed his attention, and it was not till later, the 15th of August to be exact, that I had arranged to meet him in Berlin and then return to London together for our harvest of winter work. All the members of our party, however, were known to him more or less well. And on this third day, as we sailed through the narrow opening into the lagoon and saw the circular ridge of trees in a gold and crimson sunset before us, his last words to me when we parted in London for some unaccountable reason came back very sharply to my memory and recalled the curious impression of prophecy with which I had first heard them. Enjoy your holiday and store up all the force you can, he had said, as the train slipped out of Victoria, and we will meet in Berlin on the 15th, unless you should send for me sooner. And now suddenly the words returned to me so clearly that it seemed I almost heard his voice in my ear, unless you should send for me sooner, and returned, moreover, with a significance I was wholly at a loss to understand that touched somewhere in the depths of my mind a vague sense of apprehension that they had all along been intended in the nature of a prophecy. In the lagoon, then, the wind failed us this July evening, as was only natural behind the shelter of the belt of woods, and we took to the oars, all breathless with the beauty of this first sight of our island home, yet all talking in somewhat hushed voices of the best place to land, the depth of water, the safest place to anchor to put up the tents in, the most sheltered spot for the campfires, and a dozen things of importance that crop up when a home in the wilderness has actually to be made. And during this busy sunset hour of unloading before the dark, the souls of my companions adopted the trick of presenting themselves very vividly anew before my mind, and introducing themselves afresh. In reality, I suppose, our party was in no sense singular. In the conventional life at home they certainly seemed ordinary enough, but suddenly as we passed through these gates of the wilderness I saw them more sharply than before, with characters stripped of the atmosphere of men and cities. A complete change of setting often furnishes a startling new view of people hitherto held for well-known. They present another facet of their personalities. 
I seemed to see my own party almost as new people, people I had not known properly hitherto, people who would drop all disguises and henceforth reveal themselves as they really were. And each one seemed to say, Now you will see me as I am. You will see me here in this primitive life of the wilderness without clothes. All my masks and veils I have left behind in the abodes of men. So look out for surprises. The Reverend Timothy Maloney helped me to put up the tents, long practice making the process easy. And while he drove in pegs and tightened rope, his coat off, his flannel collar flying open without a tie, it was impossible to avoid the conclusion that he was cut out for the life of a pioneer rather than the church. He was fifty years of age, muscular, blue-eyed, and hearty, and he took his share of the work and more without shirking. The way he handled the axe in cutting down saplings for the tent poles was a delight to see, and his eye in jutting the level was unfailing. Bullied as a young man into a lucrative family living, he had in turn bullied his mind into some semblance of orthodox beliefs, doing the honors of the little country church with an energy that made one think of a coal heaver tending China. And it was only in the past few years that he had resigned the living and taken instead to cramming young men for their examinations. This suited him better. It enabled him, too, to indulge his passion for spells of wild life and to spend the summer months of most years under canvas in one part of the world or another where he could take his young men with him and combine reading with open air. His wife usually accompanied him, and there was no doubt she enjoyed the trips, for she possessed, though in a less degree, the same joy of the wilderness that was his own distinguishing characteristic. The only difference was that while he regarded it as the real life, she regarded it as an interlude. While he camped out with his heart and mind, she played at camping out with her clothes and body. Nonetheless, she made a splendid companion, and to watch her busy cooking dinner over the fire we had built among the stones was to understand that her heart was in the business for the moment, and that she was happy even with the detail. Mrs. Maloney at home, knitting in the sun, and believing that the world was made in six days, was one woman. But Mrs. Maloney, standing with bare arms over the smoke of a wood fire under the pine trees, was another. And Peter Sangri, the Canadian pupil, with his pale skin and his loose, though not ungainly, figure, stood beside her in very unfavorable contrast as he scraped potatoes and sliced bacon with slender white fingers that seemed better suited to hold a pen than a knife. She ordered him about like a slave, and he obeyed, too, with willing pleasure. For in spite of his general appearance of debility, he was as happy to be in camp as any of them. But more than any other member of the party, Joan Maloney, the daughter, was the one who seemed a natural and genuine part of the landscape, who belonged to it all just in the same way that the trees and the moss and the gray rocks running out into the water belonged to it. For she was obviously in her right and natural setting, a creature of the wilds, a gypsy in her own home. To anyone with a discerning eye, this would have been more or less apparent, but to me, who had known her during all the twenty-two years of her life and was familiar with the ins and outs of her primitive, utterly unmodern type, it was strikingly clear. To see her there made it impossible to imagine her again in civilization. I lost all recollection of how she looked in a town. The memory somehow evaporated. 
this slim creature before me, flitting to and fro with the grace of the woodland life, swift, supple, adroit, on her knees blowing the fire or stirring the frying pan through a veil of smoke, suddenly seemed the only way I had ever really seen her. Here she was at home, in London. She became someone concealed by clothes, an artificial doll overdressed and moving by clockwork, only a portion of her alive. Here she was alive all over. I forgot altogether how she was dressed, just as I forgot.